morning and welcome to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. I'm Stephen Spitz. On today's show, New Mexico has just experienced its two largest wildfires in history, and our fire season is certainly not over. Is this the new normal? We'll ask UNAM professor and fire ecologist Matthew Hurtaw. Dr. Matthew Hurtaw, thanks for taking the time to be with us and for interrupting your time in France. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'd like to begin with your take on the Hermit's Peak fire. Incredibly, our largest fire ever was deliberately set by the Forest Service. Then I'd like to get a better understanding of other forested areas in New Mexico and their wildfire risk. And finally, if everyone agrees that fire suppression is so wrong, why do we do so much of it? Okay, the Hermit's Peak fire. How could that control burn go so wrong? Yeah, so the Forest Service released a, a report. So they have an independent team investigate what happened uh, and they interview lots of folks and gather data. And then they, they write this report, um, which the Forest Service released recently. And, you know, it, it named a number of things that occurred that influenced that outcome. The escape of the Las Dispensas prescribed fire, which became Hermit's Peak. I think it's important to, to note that uh, it did combine with the Calf Canyon fire, and those two fires combined are what became the largest uh, fire in history. And And I think that's important because it's really that ignition source and having the ignition source from Calf Canyon influenced in part how that fire burned across the landscape. I, I don't get that. Why? What's the point? Yeah, so the ignition point for Calf Canyon was, was further uh, west of where the Hermit's Peak ignition point was. Mm -hmm. And that matters because uh, when those winds kicked up on that, it was a Friday, if I remember correctly, we were coming down from Northern New Mexico and saw the thing blow up. Um, it was really, uh, you know, that high wind event day, uh, it pushed Calf Canyon uh, up out of that area and then it merged with Hermit's Peak. And so uh, basically the, the Hermit's Peak fire had been kind of burning to the uh, northeast of its ignition point and Calf Canyon kind of uh, under that wind event really blew up and it merged with that uh, northeast side of, of Hermit's Peak. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I just bring that up because it's really those, you know, those two ignitions that far apart uh, and the big wind event are, are what caused that big fire footprint. But the big thing is, is that, you know, these are, these are really, um, fire-prone landscapes and the managers are trying to manage that with prescribed burning to try and reintroduce this process. And they're doing it in a time where we've got a long-term drying trend. Uh, we had uh, unusually, I mean, it's always windy in New Mexico in the spring or, or, or typically windy, but it was extra windy this year. Um, you know, and these things come together and they, they influence, uh, basically they influence fire behavior. And in this case, unfortunately, a series of events happened or decisions were made or whatnot and conditions were such that, uh, you know, they, they lit and uh, some spotting occurred outside of the containment line. Spotting means the embers go outside the containment line. Exactly. Yeah. And so spotting is where the embers get outside the containment line and they land and they actually start a new fire. Uh, it's called a spot fire. And so, you know, you can have uh, embers fly, uh, and if they land in wet vegetation, it doesn't matter, right? They just kind of smolder and go out. Uh, but when the whole landscape is really super dry, 
those embers could can get ahead of or, or outside of the containment zone and, and create a new new fire. So the the head of the Forest Service, in response to the disaster at Irma Speak, said that ninety nine point eight percent of controlled burns, which this was, go fine. But when I looked at the report that you uh, referenced, it seemed like the Forest Service made so many fundamental mistakes that I have to question, first of all, the number of 98, 99.8%, and secondly, the, the overall competence. I mean, the mistakes were, like, they had a prior report, well, I think from 2019, but they didn't update the report, so they didn't actually know what the fuel load was, and they didn't actually know how dry the uh, forest was, and and they didn't reevaluate it to see those conditions uh, in relation to the wind. So they didn't make a current judgment on whether they should be doing the control burn on the day they did it. Also, the report itself said that there wasn't water present at the site and that if you were going to do a control burn, you had to bring in water. Now, this seems like the most egregious mistake I can imagine. You need to have water there if the fire spreads and they didn't have water there. They also did the they did a fire test, which I guess you're supposed to do, uh, but they did it in the wrong place. They didn't do it where there was a high fuel load, so they didn't do a proper test. So it, it seems like the, the way they went about it was so incompetent that it's hard to believe that they're otherwise competent. But I mean, what's your evaluation of the Forest Service in general? I mean, are they properly staffed? Do they know what they're doing? Because it, this one doesn't look like they do. That's a good question. Are they properly staffed? And I, I think the answer to that is a clear no. And I think that report showed that, right? They, uh, they had recommendations in the planning documents for that, for having you know, additional crews available and stuff like that. And those crews were not available. Uh, but you know, we see that in the wild, wildland fire suppression crews for this year. I mean, you know, the, the suppression crews are only about 50% staffed this fire season, right? And so, um, you know, the, the Forest Service has been basically experiencing reduced human capacity for decades now, right? It keeps shrinking, basically, the number of employees. And, uh, you know, and that's in part, I mean, this is not to defend what happened at Hermit's Peak. I'm not casting judgment either way there. But, but I think this is an overall trend is that, you know, we basically we're dependent on, you know, the hundreds of millions of forested acres in this country that are managed by the U.S. Forest Service. And we keep trying to do it on the cheap, you know, and we keep underfunding the management of these lands. We've seen some investment uh, in the infrastructure bill. There's five and a half billion dollars for for hazardous fuel reduction, which includes things like prescribed burning. But we got to have the human capital, you know, we got to have the experts available to do that work. And that's going to, you know, when it takes 15 or more years to get the qualifications to decide to light a prescribed fire, staffing up is going to take a little while. Well, you know, people are very angry sure. uh, at the Forest Service and over and, mm -hmm. and they have good reason to be. I mean, you don't want the federal government coming in and burning down your house. That's, that's not why you pay taxes. But Another perspective, and it's one you really alluded to, is that this was just a fire waiting to happen. That conditions were were so bad. It's actually the reason why the Forest Service rushed to do the control burn, right? Because 
It had been delayed by COVID, I think for a couple years, and they were worried about a fire breaking out. And the reason they were so worried is the fire conditions were so terrible. So I guess my, my question would be, was this a fire just waiting to happen? Was it gonna happen, if maybe not in April, but in May or June or soon? And so is, is some of our anger really toward the Forest Service really misplaced? Yeah, I, I, that's, you know, that's a good question. We functionally have two types of forested landscapes in New Mexico. We've got forested landscapes that have seen some sort of management or fire recently, and they're less prone to big explosive fire growth like we saw in Calf Canyon and Hermit's Peak. And then we have landscapes like this one, which uh, you know, have not seen fire for decades. Uh, if you look at the footprint of that Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak wildfire, it intersected with, uh, I think, one fire footprint from 2020, the Luna Fire, which was pretty small. I don't even know if it burned into it, but that was the only one I can think of um, that was in the footprint of that wildfire. And so, you know, that type of landscape, you know, in, in the fire world, we call that fuel loaded. So it's real dense with trees because it's had fire excluded from it for 120 years. And then there's a lot of dead trees because of insect mortality and drought. And then the, all the trees that are there are super dry because we've had, you know, real dry winters the last couple of years. And so you've got a recipe for uh, really explosive fire growth. And, and functionally, those are the two types of forested landscapes we have in New Mexico, places we've done work uh, or managed fire and places that haven't burned yet. And so um, we can focus on the ignition, uh, right? And we need to do some investigation, right? There's, there's a report drawn the agency and you know fire professionals need to look at um, what they need to do to change uh, the the chance that that something like that happens again in the future. But at the same time, those of us who live in these flammable landscapes, we need to be mindful of the fact that the ignition source is really irrelevant. That these fuel loaded landscapes are primed for this kind of fire behavior. So I want to come back and talk about that with you a little bit more, but let me mention first that this is New Mexico, People, Places, and Ideas. My name is Stephen Spitz, and we're pleased to have on the phone uh, from France, all the way from France, he's taken the time to talk to us, uh, UNAM Professor Matthew Hurtaw, and you, you are called a fire ecologist, and, and what is a fire ecologist? Yeah, so... Uh... A fire ecologist, and in my case, I, I work in, in forests, so I study the interaction between forests and wildfire. So I study how fire influences forests, uh, and I also study how things like forest structure, so you know how many trees per acre and the size of those trees and how much dead material is in the forest, how that influences uh, fire behavior. And so those, those interactions are really important for shaping you know, the way that fire moves across the landscape and also for shaping uh, where we find what kinds of forests and what kinds of tree species across the landscape. So, so one question I have about New Mexico is, I mean, I think of it as living in the desert and it's very, very arid in most places. And yet we have a fair number of forests. And why is that? How is that that, that both those things are true? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the reason we've got forests in New Mexico is the whole reason I'm, I'm drawn to the landscape there uh, and across the southwest is we've got these really big elevation gradients. Um, so, you know, down low, 
Uh, we've got actual desert. You move up a little bit and we've got grassland, but then we've got all these mountain ranges that basically as air masses move across, you know, as they come in from the West or, or the Southwest or whatever they're, you know, the, any sort of moisture in them, the, the big mountain ranges we have push that air mass up. And as it goes up in elevation, it cools off and cooler air holds less water. And so it, it causes more precipitation in the mountains. That's why we get more uh, rain and snow at higher elevations. And in uh, that additional rain or snow is what allows us to have forests at higher elevations in New Mexico. You, but you were talking earlier about the Hermes Peak fire and how it was essentially dangerous fire conditions. And you said some areas were more dangerous and some areas were less dangerous. So as you look around the state, is there some way to generally talk about it or do you have to go specifically forest by forest to evaluate the uh, fire risk? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a great question. The thing is about fires, it's, it's really place-based, right? So the conditions uh, in a particular location uh, influence what that hazard looks like. But, you know, there are some things we can use to estimate what that risk looks like across the state. But, you know, to give you an example, like while the Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak fire was burning on the east side of the, of the Sangre de Cristos, you know, on the Santa Fe National Forest to the west in the Jemez, the Cerro Palado fire took off at about the same time that, that the Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak fire really got up and, and got moving under the same kind of wind conditions. Uh, the difference is, is that in the Jemez Mountains, uh, there's been a lot more um, forest restoration work done. So there's been uh, tree thinning and prescribed burning. And that basically that Cerro Palado fire it was in a fire suppressed area, so a denser area when it got up and, and made its run on the first day, but then it slammed into an area where uh, fire managers had been doing the prescribed burning and they had done mechanical treatments and that fire laid down on the ground uh, like those treatments are designed to do. And that allowed uh, the fire suppression crews to save a community there. And then, you know, it, it basically changed the way that that fire interacted with the landscape. And so, you know, we have places on the landscape where, where forest managers have done the, the work intentionally, like with mechanical uh, tree removal and prescribed burning. And then we have places where they've done work intentionally with managing uh, natural ignition, like a lightning strike. And so that happens a lot, uh, especially down on the Gila uh, National Forest. And, uh, and then we have places where, you know, wildfire has burned and it might have been a full suppression type uh, event where they were trying to put them out, but it burned enough of an area that it changes the vegetation and um, it changes the flammability of the, the amount of fuel that's there for some time. And so those are the areas where it's, you know, where the fire hazard is lower in New Mexico. So I, so I read something on this and I can't verify its accuracy, but supposedly in the Gila, there was a survey in 1911 and there were about 50 trees per acre in 1911. And there was another survey done uh, at the end of the 20th century, and there were a thousand trees per acre. So uh -huh. there was like 20 times the number of trees. And I, I take it that's what you're talking about in terms of fuel load and the fire risk. Yeah. In un unbelievably increased density. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's a, that's a big part of it. Right. And so that happened 
because we excluded fire from the landscape. So it used to be in a lot of these like ponderosa pine forest, there was very regular surface fire. So say every, I'm gonna make up a number range here that, that captures a, a good chunk of our state, but uh, you know, say every eight to 15 years, we would have a surface fire roll through. So that's burning along the forest floor, right? And, mm -hmm. and that would kill off a lot of the juvenile trees because they can't withstand fire when they're small. It burns up their foliage and stuff. And that kept the forest more open, like what you described. But the, lar the larger trees make it through, is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Very, very few of, the fire kills very few of the larger trees. And these are ponderosa pine. That's, that's our predominant tree, forested tree, right? Yeah, it's, it, for, of, of our actual forest types, ponderosa pine makes up, uh, you know, the largest area. Okay. Yep. And, and so, you know, that surface fire, it kept the forest more open. Uh, and less dense. So I have uh, one other thing I read that I wanted to check with you, and I, I, I actually found it astounding. And I think what they were talking, this article I believe was talking about the McBride fire, which was a very destructive fire earlier this year in Rio Doso. Over 200 homes were destroyed by that fire. And they were talking about the heat of the fire. And this is something I, I really didn't understand, which is the, the fire supposedly reached 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. I mean, that's like a shockingly hot fire. Yeah. And, and I guess I don't even understand how a fire can get that hot. How, how does that happen? You know, in cases like the McBride fire, it, it ceases being a wildland fire and it becomes a, it becomes a building fire. You know, when we have those unfortunate circumstances where uh, what starts as a wildland fire burns into a community, uh, it's basically as soon as the first house catches fire, um, it becomes a structure fire, right? And, and you think of your house built out of, you know, wood framed, uh, all the material in it that's combustible, you know, from a fire perspective, that thing is just basically a giant dense pool of fuel, I mean, we don't build our houses out of wet wood, right? Uh, you know, the, the whole structure of the house is designed to keep everything inside the siding dry. And so basically once that material gets going, uh, it's just ripe for a really massive energy release. And, you know, there have been examples of these wildland urban interface fires where, uh, you know, particularly we, we first started seeing this in Northern California a number of years ago where, you know, the first house catches fire and it's actually the source of ignition for the next house. And it's, uh, you know, once the houses start burning, they are the ones that a uh, house burning is what transmits fire to the next house. So, so what I'd like to turn to next, uh, Matt, is if, if controlled burns and thinning are the way to reduce wildfires, which is what you've been saying, why aren't we doing more of it? You said a lot of our forests haven't had that uh, treatment. And why are we doing so much of fire suppression? But before we get there, I'd like to mention that this is New Mexico People, Places and Ideas. My name is Steven Spitz, and I'm very pleased to have UNAM Professor uh, Matthew Hurtal on the phone with me from France. And so, Matt, why? You know, I've been hearing for decades that fire suppression is not the way to go, that we need to thin forests, we need to uh, have controlled burns. I looked at some data on this, 
and we're spending something like I don't these numbers aren't exactly right, but something like like in the last few years, like three billion a year on fire suppression, and maybe three hundred a million a year on controlled burns and thinning. I mean, it seems all out of proportion to what ought to be happening. First of all, are those numbers anywhere close to correct? And and what do you make of that? Yeah, so like the the wildland fire suppression expenditures, uh, three billion a year. You know that there's there have been years that have cost a lot more than that, and there have been years that cost a little bit less. But I'd say on average, that's probably a decent number. And yeah, I mean, you know, here's the thing: is is it's a multifaceted problem. This whole thing, and it's it's not. Um, there's some there's some solutions. We scientifically we know what they are. Managers know what they are. But what we're asking is that these these folks, like the person who dis, who was the burn boss on the Hermit's Peak fire, what we're asking them to do is to manage, uh, you know, to use this imperfect tool, which is fire. So it's not a precision tool, and and we're asking the, them to do that within within fairly narrow parameters, and at the same time, you know, the the thing that I I don't think most people realize is. The same people that do the prescribed burning are the ones that are out there fighting the fire the rest of the year. And so, so basically, as our fire seasons have gotten longer because the, the climate is changing, it's getting warmer and drier. And so our fire seasons are, are I mean, in New Mexico, our fire season's a couple months longer uh, than it was in the 1970s, right? And so, you know, basically, more of the year, these people are out doing wildland fire suppression. And then in a narrower piece of the year, we're saying, okay, after you've come back from working these, you know, 14 or 21 day shifts and with two days off in between and, and busting your hump for, for the whole season for, for months on end, we want you to come back and then do this prescribed burning stuff uh, when conditions warrant and conditions are such that we as a society are willing to tolerate uh, the byproducts like smoke. And so, you know, the, the thing that we have to start accepting is that we can't have our cake and eat it too, like most things. And that means that uh, if we want to help reduce the risk that, you know, these large, hot, fast moving wildfires pose to our, our communities and our watersheds, we actually have to invest in the wildland fire professionals necessary, the workforce necessary to do that burning even when you know the other other professionals are off doing wildfire suppression in a different part of the country, we have a big country and the and the conditions vary, right? And so we have to be able to we have to be willing to make those investments. So I, I have sort of a fundamental uh, question about about the whole controlled burning and thinning, and yeah, I'm sure there's something wrong with my thinking on this, but you know when you do a controlled burn and you thin, you release all this carbon. Mm -hmm. into the atmosphere because those trees are their carbon sinks right and are you doing something that's counterproductive in terms of global warming because aren't you doing the exact opposite of what you should be doing which is keep the carbon in the ground yeah so uh, that's a great question uh so in in flammable landscapes like new mexico uh and i've been studying this this specific topic carbon carbon in these forests for, for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years now, the thing we need to think about is the stability of that carbon. And so 
you know, let's let's take I mean, we were talking about the Calf Canyon Hermit's Peak fire. Right. So, yeah, that landscape had a fair amount of carbon stored in it and trees. Uh, but I wouldn't call it a stable form of carbon because it a lot of it got uh, combusted and released to the atmosphere in that wildfire. And so in a restored forest where, you know, we've done some sort of mechanical treatments uh, like tree thinning and then prescribed burn or maybe we just prescribe burn it. We do release uh, carbon to the atmosphere through that prescribed burning or, you know, cut it out of the system with tree harvest. But the remaining trees that are there are less likely to be killed by stand replacing wildfire. And so that we're making that remaining carbon uh, more resistant to loss from fire. So, so one more question about fire suppression, which is the, the general topic we're talking about, which is, you know, I, um, this is sort of a thought experiment. There, there was a fire, uh, I think it's called the Atalaya. I might not be pronouncing that right. The Atalaya Mountain is three miles outside of Santa Fe. And there was no question that that fire was going to be suppressed, right? Because it's three miles outside Santa Fe. And all of Santa Fe is a fire zone. They've got all this woodland surrounding it. And all of it is highly flammable. So it, it seems to me that as long as people are living in the wildland interface, we're going to have to have fire suppression. And it, it, it seems like the only question is, are we going to do the controlled burns and the thinning too? Because we're going to, aren't we going to have to continue to do fire suppression? Yeah. So fire suppression gets, uh, you know, vilified, so to speak. Uh, it, it's like the root cause of all these problems, right? And it, it is a contributing factor to the conditions that we're currently experiencing, right? And and that's that's caused the forest to get more dense and fuel to build up. But there are really two, you think about the landscape and it, 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 we need to divide it up into a couple of pieces. There's that one piece you mentioned right now, which is the wildland urban interface, right? So we've got homes interspersed with vegetation and stuff like that. You know, people want to live there. It's beautiful, right? They do. They do. And it's a risky place to live. And, and you know, you're, there's very, very limited set of conditions under which you can burn up real, you know, like prescribed burn up close up against people's houses, right? And around Santa Fe is probably not one of them. And so that's always going to be a suppression zone for sure. But we want to think about as you move away from that wildland urban interface and out into the wildland, you want to think about the ability of, of the wildland to transmit fire into the wildland urban interface. And so if we do this prescribed burning and stuff like that out in the wildlands, uh, we can change the way that fire spreads across that landscape and we can change uh, the chance that it's going to burn from the wildland into the wildland urban interface. So it's really, we're always going to have some suppression and we're always going to have some prescribed burning. And it's, it's basically, you know, where, where we have more of one over the other is going to depend where we are in the landscape. And it's also going to in part depend on what choices we make in terms of investing in land management. So, so Matt, we're right at the end of the show, and I'd like to ask the question I raised at the top, which is, is this fire season really emblematic of the new normal? Is this season like the ones we're going to have in the near future? What do you think? I think that in the climate change world, we think of normal as an average, uh, just like normals in weather. So it's like a 30-year average. I don't think we are experiencing the new average. I think that 
I think that this is a, a sign of, of what more is to come in the future as our landscapes dry out further. If we choose to neglect our job of tending the landscape with fire, right, and restoring fire to these ecosystems, we will have more of this. There's going to be a lot more of this to come. As the atmosphere warms up and dries out, these forests will become even more flammable. And so the one thing that we have uh, at our disposal, the one tool we have at our disposal in New Mexico to directly influence that risk is to restore the right kind of fire, these you know, kind of surface fires through prescribed burning to these landscapes and help reduce some of that fuel so that when you know, these fire starts happen in the springtime, they burn differently than they do now. We are going to have to leave it there. I would like to thank our guest, UNM professor and fire ecologist, Matthew Hurtaw. Thanks also to my producer, Eli Henley. The executive producer of this show is Lynn Shebecki, and my name is Steven Spitz. You've been listening to New Mexico People, Places and Ideas on KUNL. Podcasts of the show are available wherever you get podcasts. Archives of past shows are at stevenspitz.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.